If you love this podcast and love easy and informative CEUs, then this is the deal for you. SpeechTherapyPD.com has over 175 hours of pod courses on demand with an average of 19 new pod courses released each month. You can get ASHA continuing ed credit for every episode you listen to. And because I think you're terrific, I can offer $20 off a year's subscription when you use my code SUP20 for the insanely low rate of $59. This week, I'm delighted to have Caitlin Saxteen on the podcast to talk about nutritional considerations for end of life with our patients. Um, Caitlin's here to talk about how speech and language pathologists and palliative care professionals work together to effectively provide education and counseling to patients and their families regarding the progressive nature of a disease, dysphagia, and nutritional options. This can include oral intake, comfort feeds, and alternative means of nutrition and hydration. So this collaboration with palliative care and the SLP um, help foster communication um, with the patient's cultural, spiritual, and personal ideas with the end goal of promoting overall quality of life at this end stage. Um, it's a really great conversation. I'm so glad Caitlin came on to share this information with us. It's something that I know I need more education and experience in, and I want to be really prepared for um, participating in that space. So thank you so much, Caitlin Saxton, for coming on the podcast and sharing this information with us. So yeah, let's get into it. I'm Leanne Porter, your host. This is the Speech Uncensored Podcast. Well, welcome, Caitlin Saxton. How are you doing today? I am very well. Thank you. Thank you for having me on your podcast again. Um, it's a pleasure to be here today with you. Yeah, excellent. I'm really excited. I really enjoyed the conversation that we had previously. Um, you were a guest on a little special series I did for COVID called COVID Conversations, um, where you came on and talked about what working during the COVID pandemic has been like for you in your region of the world and in your setting. So for people who might have missed that, can you tell us, give us a little bit of an update about that? Sure, of course. So I work in acute care. I am in Long Island, New York. Um, so we were pretty, we were hit pretty hard. Um, it was challenging. We are growing and ever learning as a field. And now it's, it's about July. So we have definitely slowed down. Um, we are still seeing patients with COVID. Um, but my entire caseload is not COVID, which is very nice. Um, just a few here and there, um, not insane as it was. That's that's really good to hear. I'm so glad it wasn't as um, such high numbers as you and your system were experiencing when we chatted. Like, I'm really glad to hear it's gone down. But of course, that doesn't mean it's over. Like, we still have patients with COVID and the numbers are telling us, you know, that we are still in this and we still need to be doing all the things that are recommended, like face mask and physical distancing and things like that. So, okay, we are here. We have gathered here today <laughs> to talk about nutritional consideration at the end of life. Um, I'm really excited about taking this deeper dive into looking at dysphagia and palliative care and learning a little bit more about our role in that and what the literature and the research has to tell us. Um, I'm really excited because I feel like 
your outline is touching on so much more than the physical implications of dysphagia. You know, you're going to talk about the social implications, the mental health implications. And I think sometimes we overlook those. And so I'm really looking forward to learning more about that. All right, Caitlin, um, you gave us a little intro just kind of related to the COVID business. But what about you? What do you do um, when you're not working um, directly in patient care? What else are you up to? Um, I live, again, I live in Long Island. I actually live in Westampton Beach, a beach town. So I love to go to the ocean. Um, right now in New York, it's beautiful. Um, so I spend most of my time at the ocean with my family. Um, I love to run. I do hot yoga. I love to do anything outside. I spend a lot of time with my family. So I'm all about family and hanging out with them. Cool. And what about professionally? What do you do um, outside your nine to five? I am a lover of learning. Um, I take a slew of CEUs all the time. I thoroughly enjoyed um, Asha's learning pass um, that expired on June 30th. I took a slew of CEUs, which was great. Um, and I volunteer with my local East End Hospice. Um, I do a lot of bereavement groups with them. I make bereavement phone calls for them. Um, so not that necessarily I'm seeing patients that are on hospice as a speech pathologist, but I am um, volunteering and doing some bereavement activities with them, which is um, great and which has also taught me so much um, and why I'm here today to talk about this topic. Because um, it's definitely a um, area that I thoroughly enjoy. Excellent, excellent. Okay, well, let's get down to it and let's begin at the beginning. Let's start with terms and defining things so that we're all operating under you know the same assumptions going forward. So, what is palliative care? So, I often like to start with um, these key vocabulary terms because I find that palliative care and hospice care are often um, used interchangeably, and they do not mean the same thing. Um, so palliative care, the goal of palliative care is really to improve the quality of life for both the patient and the family, um, whereas hospice care is uh, when treatment is no longer curative. So a physician typically says that a patient will expire or pass away within six months. Um, of course, if a patient is not um, expired by that time, they can renew it or they could um, revise their plan of care, um, but typically hospice is when the patient is terminally ill. Um, so those two terms do not mean the same thing, and I find that we often confuse them, so it's so important that we lay that foundation or that groundwork so that we understand exactly which one um, means. So we want to think of palliative care as an umbrella term that encompasses hospice care, so they don't necessarily mean the same thing. When a patient is nearing end of life, can you talk a little bit about what their body might be going through and how we kind of come on the scene from a swallowing standpoint with dysphagia? You know, every patient is different depending upon why they are end of life, if they have a progressive disease, um, or maybe this is um, some type of acute neurological event and, and they now are end of life, or uh, maybe they have been undergoing um, or have had the diagnosis of cancer, and now they're at the end of life. So there's so many different reasons as to why somebody may be end of life. Um, typically, we are already following a patient before they get to that stage, hopefully. Um, so for instance, let's just say a patient who has Parkinson's, we may not 
be consulted right at the end of life. We may have already been following them prior to that um, decision to be end of life. So I think in my head, what I'm thinking is, you know, there's so much tied into how we care for and love on people with food. And we feel like if they're not eating, they're not being cared for, and that everybody should be eating up until the day they pass on. But I'm coming to learn and to hear more about the flip side of that, and that one of the processes, and correct me if I'm off a bit, one of the processes of dying is that your body does not want food anymore. It doesn't want to metabolize that. Like that's kind of a process there that, I don't know, does that make sense? It does. Um, And I think that is very true. And that is a hard concept for family members to um, accept. Um, A quote that I use all the time, I'm just reading who it's by, it's from Dramal from 2016. Um, And one of their research articles, they said, every human being needs nutrition and hydration to live. Nutrition is associated with life and is absence with starvation. Um, And I think that is just such a, a great quote and something that goes along with what you just said is that we really feel as though if we're not feeding our patients, we're starving them. Not necessarily we, but their family members may. Um, and feeding is also a way of love. Um, and depending on the patient, depending on their cultural beliefs or spiritual beliefs, that's something that they do. So eating food, sharing food, sitting at meals together, they're all significant social events that we're all, we all know. So for instance, just even holidays, so 4th of July, we always associate it with food. We associate it with hamburgers and hot dogs we typically go to happy hour any holiday we typically ask what can I bring what can I do and so that is definitely something that's very difficult for our families is that you know we're not going to feed this patient right now and I think that's a hard concept um, to accept for families and going back to what you're saying about just being at the end of life um, typically if a patient does want something or request something, by the time you bring it to them, they might not even want it. There was a research study done by McCann that said 63% of patients experienced no hunger or thirst at the end of life, and 35% of the patients had symptoms of dry mouth, hunger, and thirst only initially, and then after we performed good oral care, those symptoms subsided. Um, So usually any type of feeling as though they're hungry or thirsty is subsided or alleviated given good oral care or sips of water, which is something that we as a professional should be doing and educating the families and loved ones to do also. Interesting. I'm really fascinated to dig a little deeper into that concept where if someone is at the very kind of end stages of their life and they're like, oh, I'm really hungry. I almost, I, I wonder, is that article kind of suggesting that we say, how about I brush your teeth? That'll make the hunger go away. Like, I don't think the article is suggesting that we we brush their teeth um, and and do not allow them to eat or drink or say that that totally alleviates that want or need for food or liquid. Um, but I think it's just saying that patients who are not aware or awake and alert enough to be eating by mouth and their loved ones want them to doing great oral care, giving them sips of liquid that may help provide that family with we are still I don't want to say treating them because they feel as though I think that 
sometimes we have given up on them. Yeah. So it's like replacing that need to love on that that person by loving on them by giving them food or giving them water, but maybe their alertness is just too low for that. They really, they're not going to chew something up and swallow, or they're not going to manipulate something in their mouth and then swallow, but we want, their mouth looks really dry or they look really uncomfortable. So we want to care for them and love for them. So then we can do oral care. We can do those hygiene protocols that makes the care provider feel like they're caring for their loved one. And then that makes the patient feel better. Is that kind of maybe the gist of it? Yes. Okay. Got it. That makes a lot more sense. And you said that was a McCain article from. It was a McCain article from 1994. Going off of just talking about dysphagia, um, we can talk about the psychological risk factors that occur when a patient has this feature. So there's been some research on this. Um, and we as speech pathologists want to be aware of this when we are seeing our patients and know in the back of our head just the perceived and felt suffering among patients with dysphagia. In 2002, Eckberg did a study and said that the psychological and social impact of dysphagia, 41% of patients reported that they had panic or anxiety during mealtimes and 36% avoided eating with others during meals because of their dysphagia. So we really want to take into account how dysphagia affects our patients, um, not only our patients, but their loved ones. We have just talked a little bit about loved ones, but also our, our patients. So again, it goes back to that like food and the enjoyment of eating. It plays an important role um, socially with our religion, and it definitely is, gives us some symbolic roles in most cultures. Yeah, we can't discount that or think that by, I mean, when we give recommendations such as NPO or nil per os, nothing by mouth, you know, we, it's, it's such a bigger picture rather than, is that what will keep, potentially keep this patient healthier longer? It's such a multifactorial decision-making that needs to take into account the values and the wishes of the patient and what they're going through. And so when they're in the unique circumstances at end of life, I think that takes a very different coloring and implication to that decision-making skill. In your work, what kind of features are you looking for when you're making those recommendations um, or when maybe you've been consulted on something? Like, What features are you looking at? Well, I definitely agree with you that we need to look at the whole picture. I think that's so important. We work very closely with our palliative care team, which is great because we have that collaboration and that communication um, where we're able to effectively educate the patient and their families. Um, we also work very closely with our gastroenterologist, which I think is so important because a lot of, depending on the patient, depending on the scenario, um, if we are recommending NPO and NAH is an option, let's just say a G-tube or a J-tube, and they want to do that, but they do have a progressive disease, for instance, maybe an advanced dementia, I think it is very important that we as speech pathologists know the research and that we're communicating, collaborating with our palliative care team, our GI team, so that we can provide the most effective communication and education to the patient and their loved ones. Yeah, that's a really, really good point. I think I was in my head, like narrowing it down to like a very specific type of patient, but you just can't make those generalities with such a diverse patient population. Like there's so many factors going on. We can't say, well, when I approach a case like this, like I'm looking at these three factors um, because there's so many 
so many qualifications, so many things to look at that that would be almost impossible. The only way you could do that is if you started with a case study, you know, and said, and these are the things, here's the decision-making tree that I went down, you know? And then it might be very different for the next case study. Oh man, that's like the pain of my existence when it comes to our job. It's like, everything is so unique. <laughs> it is, and every case is different. <laughs> um, Asha does have a standpoint on um, the end of life for a speech pathologist. Um, and they say three factors that we should consider as speech pathologists are the medical status. Um, so the patient's diagnosis, is it acute versus a chronic? Is it progressive versus reversible? Um, their nutritional status. So is their nutritional status, um, we should look at their the current intake that the patient has, um, and then also just their projected needs. And then the last thing is their behavioral or cognitive status. So their ability to attend and participate a meal. Um, I also work with patients who are intellectually disabled. So I really look at that behavioral and cognitive status because if they are ending the near, nearing the end of life, unfortunately here in New York, I'm not sure if it's like this in every state with our patients with intellectual disabilities, their decisions are not necessarily made by family. Sometimes they don't have family and sometimes it goes directly to the state. And unfortunately, most of the time it is to just continue curative treatment, uh, regardless of the patient's medical status. Um, and sometimes these patients are more apt to pull out the tube. And so then that requires them to be restrained, whether that's physically or, you know, chemically. Um, so I think that last one is, is very important. All of them are very important, but definitely we want to consider those three things um, when we're talking about quality of life for our patients. Absolutely. Um, yeah how much poorer is that person's quality of life if they get a peg tube they're they want they just are drawn to pulling out this tube that's now coming out of their body they don't know it they don't like it so of course they want to pull it out uh but they can't because that would be more damaging so then they must be restrained some way like that's that is a couple steps down on quality of life? Like what have we really done to improve their circumstances in that case? Of course. And a lot of times eating um, is the only pleasure of these patients' lives. And also sometimes their group home from where they're from are unable to manage um, a G-tube or a J-tube. So now they must go to either a nursing home or a different group home. So now you're totally changing their life, changing their setting. Um, and it's just so sad. That is, that is super unfortunate. That seems like a really poor course of action. Um, <laughs> I feel like I've been coming across so many different areas where we need like some advocates to like get rowdy up in here and make some positive change. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we do. <laughs> we really do. So I guess we could talk about um, alternate means of nutrition hydration just as a whole. So if we are withholding NAH, so that's alternative um, nutrition hydration, is it even more harmful? So not only will the patient die, but will they suffer until death? Um, that is something that is often asked and often assumed, um, which is not true. Um, so we talked about um, the study before that um, most dying patients do not experience significant hunger or thirst, 
um, and that NAH is not necessarily effective in relieving such hunger or thirst. Um, and we also want to be aware that NAH is really used for patients who have a temporary inability to swallow, not necessarily these patients who are at the end of life or at the end of a disease process. Caitlin, that is so key, I think. And that was something I missed when I was learning about alternative means of nutrition and hydration is that um, I thought it was a, like it could be it, it, it was meant to be a forever solution in some cases. It's like, oh, well, if you're not safe to eat and drink, don't worry, we have a backup plan for you. <laughs> like, but no, all of these methods were meant, as you mentioned, to be temporary, to be um, a stopgap measure while somebody um, was going through something. So then, of course, that brings us around to people with progressive um, disease patterns. And so what's the solution there? And um, it still isn't alternative means of nutrition and hydration. In certain cases, maybe, but in most cases, probably not. Yes. Um, and there are so many things that go along with NAH, so complications, bleeding, um, again, back to that behavioral component, restraining patients, and then also too, just their saliva. So if they do have one of these progressive diseases, are they aspirating their own saliva? Or do they have reflux? Is it coming back up? So are you really doing any good? Um, of course, these decisions are for the patient and the family to make, but I think it is so important that we as speech pathologists know um, the current research and know what is out there so that we can not only educate ourselves, educate our palliative care teams, educate our GI doctors, and work together effectively as a team so that we can provide the best information to our patients and their loved ones. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And then let's also add on another little tidbit that if a person has um, a tube, either a J-tube or a PEG-tube, and they aspirate, okay, they have reflux. They can aspirate that reflux, which is so much more damaging to their airway than aspirating the food or the liquid. Reflux coming up from that stomach, that acid, that's, that's like a chemical reaction to the lung tissue. It is so bad. It is like, what is it? The, is it the pneumonitis that people get when they aspirate on reflux? I believe so, yes. Yeah, it is super, it's like way worse than if they had aspirated and grew a bacterial infection. It is really harmful. So you could potentially be doing more harm by putting in a PEG tube if it also leads to an increased risk of reflux and then they aspirate the reflux. Like gotta know like what the risks are in all of these. And I don't think we were totally given the whole risk profile when we were asked to make recommendations for alternative means of nutrition and hydration. You know, I didn't know that during my first placement when I was a CF. No, and there was actually a study done in 2009 that looked at the beliefs and practices of SLPs um, and G2 recommendations. And it came, what it revealed was that 78% of SLPs believe that two feeds actually improve nutritional status. Um, these were among patients with advanced dementia and yeah, which we, it, it, that was 2009. So I'm hoping, you know, over 10 years where we're good now, we know that that doesn't, that's not true. Um, and, but only 11% of them would want a tube for themselves. So I thought that was funny that they had no problem recommending it for their patients, but they themselves would not want it. 
right? That is that is almost like such a good um, like gate to pass your thoughts through. It's like, would you recommend this for yourself if you were in their exact same circumstances and their health issues were happening to you? Would you want the peg tube or the J tube? Like, consider that. Um, I actually had a family member of a patient ask me while I was giving them um, education and recommendations. He asked me, would you make these same recommendations if this was your father? And I was like, oh, I like you. I was like, that's a good question. I was like, I hope I'm sure that person did ask like every provider that question. It's so true. It's like, would you do this to a loved one? Would you make these same recommendations knowing everything you know to a loved one? Although then it's like, would we, you know, sometimes we always cut corners with stuff. Just going back to that, um, there is another survey done um, in 2014. So it wasn't too long ago about what physicians thought about G2. And they actually believed that it improved nutritional status, that it reduced aspiration, and that it prevented pressure sores in patients with dementia. So this wasn't too long ago. So I think this shows us that it is so important that we know this information and we need to share it. Um, I believe as speech pathologists, we, depending on where you work and some people don't know what we do and what knowledge that we have. Um, so I think it's so important that we work as a team with our palliative care team, with the physicians, um, so that we can provide the best quality of care and education to our patients and their families, especially at the end of life. Mm -hmm. That is so good. And it's so interesting that they also asked those physicians in that study about, you know, what did J-tube reduce the likelihood of the patient getting pressure sores? Because I think that's another area that at least I can only speak to myself so that I didn't have much awareness of. And I'm, I'm like emerging in awareness of how um, nutrition and a variety, like actual nutrition, not just eating and drinking, but getting a wide variety of minerals and vitamins and fiber and all those good things into your diet affects the integrity of your skin. And so more nutrition, the integrity of your skin is stronger. And so you are less likely to get pressure sores. Now, of course, you still need to be moving and turning and all of those things too. But when you have very poor nutrition in your system, that will lead to skin breakdown and promote the creation of the pressure ulcers and, and whatnot. So like, that's just something as well that if people don't know of, like go and Google these things, like find those connections. Like this is our wheelhouse. We do need to know these things. Yes, definitely. There is a great book. I wrote it in the resources. It's called Being Mortal by Dr. Glonde. He talks about um, just the medical field at all, in, as a whole. And um, this specific book talks about end of life and just kind of how we do it all wrong. Um, and in part of it, he says medical professionals need to build a system that focuses on how to help dying patients achieve what's most important to them at the end of their lives. And I just feel like this is so important um, because we are always so versed on rehab and treating and, and making patients feel better. And not necessarily that we're not making them feel better, but making patients better. And that's not always the case. Um, and of course, death and dying is an uncomfortable topic. It's an uncomfortable conversation. But I think that the more that we have it, the more knowledge that we have and the more top conversations that we have with our physicians and our teams, um, the more comfortable we will be. And then also the better communication and collaboration that we'll have. 
Yes. And all of those things lead to better outcomes for our patients. Like that is so key. Yes, definitely. Okay. Any, um, did you want to do anything more into those alternative means of nutrition and hydration, like pathways? Like, did you want to get into any specifics on those before we move forward? I'm going to share this one, one more research article. Sorry. Um, just because I, when I read it, I was so surprised and so shocked. Um, so this was done um, in 2013, and they said that approximately one in 10 inpatients undergoing a PEG do not survive to hospital discharge. Um, and these were patients that had um, increasing in age, of course, um, CHF, renal failure, um, CVA, metastatic cancer. So these were patients who were had multiple comorbidities. They weren't necessarily just your acute stroke undergoing a G-tube. They had other um, medical diagnoses. Um, but I just thought that was so interesting. And it's such a large number when I read it um, that I like to share mm -hmm. that. Yeah, that's really important too. Um, there's so, gosh, sometimes I get really overwhelmed by the amount of information I feel responsible for knowing to be a competent SLP. <laughs> and whenever I get overwhelmed, I just am like, all right, I need a book to read that's like sci-fi or something. Like I just need to unplug. Like, it, like I do like the opposite where I need to like do more reading and learning and stuff. I just like turn off. But you know, I have found that it is so achievable when I take it in small bites, um, when I choose one area uh, to focus on and and go slowly and not like overwhelm myself with too much information, but to, to um, you know, read something and digest it. And then I think the most important part then is, is to talk about it because I found that I would do all this reading and I would have all these thoughts kind of jumbled around in my head. And then I would go to try to like explain something to a patient to give them some information um, so that they would know what's going on with their plan of care. It all kind of came out jumbled. And but the more I did it, the more I practiced that, the more fluid it came, the more it made sense when it came out, <laughs> it was cohesive and logical. Like that's just what we need to do. Sometimes the learning and the application of it is messy, um, but that's, that's the way forward. It's not going to be perfect. Um, I am a recovering perfectionist. Like apparently this is like confession time. <laughs> I can agree and relate to everything you just said. <laughs> we are one and the same. Right. It's like, ah, just one step at a time. So yeah, I love having these conversations with people and finding, you know, these little things that people say. And I'm like, wait, what? I didn't know that. What else does that mean? What other implications does that have? Ah, oh, man, I got to go read some more. Like, <laughs> it's good, though. All right. Um, are you ready to move forward into advanced directives? Yes. Um, so in New York, we have something called a MULST. So it is Medical Orders for Life-Sustaining Treatment. It's actually on the, on the East Coast. Um, in other states, I know they do not have this. I think they have a pulse, a physician's order of life-sustaining treatment, or they just have advanced directives. They all mean the same exact thing. It's just advanced directives. Um, so it goes over the patient's options um, as to what they would want for life-sustaining treatment. Um, so it goes into CPR, DNR, DNI, um, future hospitalizations, a feeding tube, and or antibiotics. 
Um, so of course, this is so important for us to know all of these things and what a patient and their loved one would want. So this is for more palliative care or the physician to go over with the patient, but it is so important that we know what the options are and that we know what they are when we're doing our swallow evaluation, when we're doing our recommendations, when we're providing education, because we really want to base our plan of care based off of what the patient and the family wishes are. Um, again, if it is somebody who maybe is having difficulty swallowing, but they are end of life, we may divert our recommendations to a different pathway rather than if they were um, curative or, or undergoing treatment. Um, so it is so important for us to know what advanced directives are and then also what the patient and the family wants. Dr. Gwande, there's this really great clip that he did um, on a podcast. I don't recall which podcast, but he talked to a palliative care NP um, and they just were talking about advanced directives as a whole and end of life and what family members want and all of those things. Um, and the palliative care NP was saying that her father was undergoing um, a surgery and she was at her, his house the night before and she left his house and then she went back because she thought to herself, we've never talked about advanced directives. Um, so she went back and she said that even though she is a palliative care NP, um, that the conversation was was strange and it was difficult because here she was having this conversation with her loved one. Um, and she asked him what was important to him. And to her surprise, he said that um, if I'm able to eat chocolate ice cream and watch football on TV, then I'm willing to stay alive. Uh, I'm willing to go through a lot of pain if I have that shot. And so she came back and said that this response was totally unexpected because she said that he was a professor. She never remembers him watching football ever. Um, and that that just wasn't what the picture of him she had created in her head was. Um, so the next day he had surgery and unfortunately he had some complications and they would have to go back into surgery. Um, and so the surgeons came out and asked her what they what the plan of care, what the next step was. And she said that she had three minutes to make the decision um, and she wasn't really sure. And she said she was so thankful that she went back that night before because she knew exactly what to do. So she said to the surgeon, um, if you do go back in and do surgery, would he be able to eat chocolate ice cream and watch uh, football on TV? And they looked at her um, strangely <laughs> um, and said yes. And then she went back into the operating room and he ended up being OK. And she said that if it was not for that conversation with her father, um, her first instinct would have been to let him go. Um, and now looking back, it would just seem so awful, um, that, you know, would she have that regret? Did I let him go too soon? Um, so I think this is just so important that we need to have these conversations with our loved ones personally. And then also we need to know that our patients are having these conversations with their loved ones. Um, so not necessarily even at the end of life, but at any stage, we really should be having these conversations because it takes that, um, that responsibility off of the loved ones. Um, and they're really able to make those decisions knowing what their loved one would have wanted. There's a great website mm -hmm. called Death Over Dinner. Um, and <laughs> I know, right? It's great. Um, I love this website. It's so fabulous. It breaks it up into three segments. So when you go onto the website, you can choose if you are a healthcare provider, you can choose if you're just 
um, a family member wanting to talk to another family member about advanced directives, about death, about what they would want. And then you can choose different items of how you're going to have the conversation with them. And it gives you prompts and they provide videos. Um, and it's really amazing. And, and so they set up this quote unquote death over dinner and you have this discussion about advanced directives, um, you know, depending on who the audience is. Yeah, that's so good. Um, and I really love that illustration that you just gave. Um, because when having like learning more about advanced directives, like I thought I needed to go online, print off some kind of form that was like some sort of checklist. And it was like, um, do you want, like, would you be, would it be acceptable to be mechanically ventilated? Check yes or no. You know, like things like that. Like I needed to ask super specific questions, you know, whereas this, um, you know, a daughter who also works as a palliative nurse practitioner was having a conversation with her father and her father was like, as long as I can eat chocolate ice cream and watch football, I'm good. Like that, that's it. There's like, and that's, maybe that's where we need to start that conversation. It doesn't need to be something super formal and explicit, like what I had built up in my mind, that it's something where you just sit down with your family members and you're like, what does that look like? What, what would be acceptable living status for you? What do you want out of life? Um, that makes me think of a, a friend of the family who was going through a progression of, um, a neurodegenerative disease and they decided early on they never wanted to go the um peg route they they never wanted an alternative means of nutrition and this was years ago and i remember thinking in my head like well why would you shortchange yourself those years like i thought they had made that decision um to shorten their possible lifespan but knowing what i know now it has nothing to do with that at all um, yeah, that, that probably didn't even come into the picture. It was how that person chose to enjoy their life. And the peg tube did not enter into that. So what, and I love what you said that it doesn't have to be so medically driven. And so it's either this or that. So what she actually said to him, she said, I need to understand how much you're willing to go through to have a shot at being alive. And what level of being alive is tolerable to you? So, I mean, I'm sure we could change the language to make it different, but I think that it goes back to what you're saying that it it's so true. What level of being alive is tolerable to you? What is quality of life for you? And of course, that's going to be different for every patient, for every family member. Um, but it's so important that we are taking that into consideration when we are seeing our patients, when we're... Um, making our recommendations, that we're making sure that our recommendations are recommendations that are discussed with the patient and their family and decided upon together as a team collaboratively. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So thinking back to that um, family friend, I, I think that they had that. They had a really good discussion and they had all the facts and they made quality of life decisions um, that I, I was not in tune to. You know, I didn't understand that. I didn't know now what I knew then. Is that how that goes? <laughs> <laughs> like, all I could see was one thing. Um, so I'm really glad that they had that space and they made the decisions that were best for them. Like, that's, they had quality. It was the quality that they wanted. And that's so important. And um, 
And I think that's also another good kind of illustration of how their decisions didn't align with like what I thought good decisions were, or maybe what I would want. And so that's another thing. Like I'm, I'm continually kind of like going back and looking at like taking myself out of the picture. Like their decisions don't have to align with mine. In fact, they, they won't because they're their own person. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> um, and I think that that is important for us to um, think of too, is that what we believe and what we think should happen is not what a patient or family may want. And that's okay. And we have to go along with what they want and still be able to provide them with the, the best care possible. Um, and so it is so important that we know what we're talking about, that we're collaborating with our palliative care team, with the physicians, with, you know, everybody on the team so that we can provide the best care. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Totally agree. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, I'm wondering now I'm thinking back and I'm looking back and kind of at the beginning, we were talking about eating and quality of life and psychological implications of that on dysphagia and end of life care. And I'm just checking in to make sure we kind of covered, um, some of those really important pieces of information that we've wanted to share in our discussion today. Um, because I'm pretty notorious for getting us off track. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I'm just doing a big old um, social back. <laughs> let's see. So we we talked about how the social implications of um, dysphagia, um, along with just you know going out and eating and holidays and how that looks different for our patients with dysphagia. Um, we want to take that into consideration and we want to remember that. So I think that's a big piece for us to take away um, is, again, we want to look at that whole picture. We don't just want to say, okay, this is this and that's it. It's not black and white. It is, we have to look at the whole picture and see what their wishes are, what they want and what they consider quality of life. I agree. All right. Well, okay. So this is my other little check-in with you. Um, were there any other topics or pieces that we didn't really unpack totally um, that we need to revisit before we tie a bow on this bad boy? I know I'm going through. I think um, just overall talking about um, death and dying and end of life, it's not something that we learn in graduate school. It's not something that we necessarily talk about. Um, and it is so important that we do talk about it. Um, I know in my graduate program, I did not have a class on um, like communication skills or how to break bad news. Um, I don't know if other programs have. I know now they're starting to add it into programs. Um, so I think that is so great and so important. Um, but there are um, different protocols out there that you could look up to see what the best mode or effective way to communicate to a family is. Um, and I think that is so important for us to know as well, because Communication is so important, especially in this topic, um, and we shouldn't be scared to talk about it. We should be able to. Um, and so I think just opening up that door and being able to talk about death and being able to talk about nearing the end of life and what quality of life looks like is so important. Yeah, I agree. And yeah, I want to encourage people that, you know, who might experience, you know, feelings of discomfort around having these uh, conversations on death and dying and what that looks like and that 
it, it will be that way at the beginning, but like most things in life, the more you do it and you practice it, um, you kind of, there will always be elements of discomfort. And so like, don't, I don't know, shy away from that. Like it's, it's okay. We can be uncomfortable for a short period of time. That's all right. I used to think like I, I had to avoid that at like all costs or lighten the mood or crack a joke or whatever. Like, no, it's okay to like be uncomfortable or be awkward for a period of time. Um, as long as it's coming from like a place of like genuine care and support. Like that's, that's what shines through. Like, yeah. That's all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I agree. 100%. <laughs> Yay. Okay, good. All right, Caitlin. Um, how can people learn more about you and what you're doing or follow up if they had some more questions on this topic? Um, well, I do have social media. I don't post much about speech on social media, but you could always reach out to me on social media. I have Instagram and Facebook. Um, and then you can always email me. Um, I love to collaborate. I love to chat. Um, it's one of my favorite things to do. So if anybody ever needs anything, you could always email me. Um, I'll send you my email. You could put it on there. Okay. Yep. It'll be up in the show notes then. Um, all right. And okay. Also in the show notes will be all these studies that you've mentioned. All the references will be there. Um, if anyone wants to kind of dive in and take a look at what these papers say in the totality of them. And um, okay, we'll also put the death over dinner resource up there too. Yes. <laughs> That's a good one. All right, Caitlin, thank you so, so much for coming on and having this conversation with me. And thank you for letting me get on my soapboxes that apparently like just like jumped up out of nowhere. <laughs> no, I love it. Thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure. Thanks for listening to another edition of the Speech Uncensored podcast. Show notes with links to resources mentioned in the episode are posted on speechuncensored.com. I'd love for you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a thoughtful review on Apple Podcasts. Shout out to the hardworking team at speechtherapypd.com for their sweet editing skills and for sponsoring ASHA CEU credit for this episode. And finally, I'd like to leave you with my wish for you to nourish your mind so that your practice can flourish. 